experience as a parent and uh, as a coach and teacher and now as a grandparent is that children can have a unique and naive uh, way of viewing life, often seeing things uh, through childish lenses and not uh, hesitating to share what's on their mind. A good case in point was that of a teacher who was given a lesson on the circulation of the blood. He was trying to uh, make the uh, matter clear. He said, now boys, if I stood on my head over there in the corner, the blood would run into it and my face would turn red. Why is it then, while I'm standing upright in an ordinary position, the blood doesn't run to my feet and cause my feet to turn red? And immediately one little boy threw up his hands and he said, oh, oh, I know, I know. And the teacher said, well, what is it? He said, well, uh, maybe it's because uh, your feet ain't empty. I know it's early, but I wanted to get you started on the right foot. Or I love the story that I heard. If any of you have um, relatives that are retired, you may appreciate this. Um, a teacher asked her young pupils how they spent their vacation, and one child wrote the following. Listen carefully to these words. We always used to spend the holidays with Grandma and Grandpa. They used to live here in a big brick house, but Grandpa got retarded and they moved to Florida. Now they live in a place with a whole bunch of other retarded people. It says they live in a tin box and have rocks painted green to look like grass. They ride around on big tricycles and wear their name tags because they don't know who they are anymore. They go to a building called a rec center, but they must have got it fixed because it looked okay to me. They play games and do exercises there, but they don't seem to do them very well. There's a swimming pool too, but all they do is they stand up and down. They jump up and down in it with their hats on. I guess they don't know how to swim. It says at their gate, there's a little dollhouse with a little old man sitting in it. He watches all day so nobody can escape. <laughs> Sometimes they sneak out. When they do, they go cruising in their golf carts. This is my grandma used to bake cookies and stuff, but I guess she forgot how. Nobody there cooks, they just eat out. And they eat the same thing every day. They eat early birds. <laughs> Some of the people can't get past the man in the dollhouse to go out. So the ones who do get out bring back food to the rec center and they call it potluck. My grandma says grandpa worked all his life to earn his retardment and says, I should work hard too so I can be retarded someday just like him. He goes, I want, to the, I want to be the man in the dollhouse. Then I'll let people out so they can go visit their grandchildren. Ooh. Got some of it right and missed on some of the others. And you know, it's interesting, even as we become adults, that we can lose our perspective as far as how God sees things and that we're rapidly coming to a conclusion of a series that has focused our attention on what God describes as love. Next week will be the last week. And as we've learned, God's love is radically different from what the world describes as love. And the biblical definition that we've been focusing upon is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. It was the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers in the city of Corinth outside of Athens, Greece. And in this particular um, passage, we find nestled in among uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, talking about spiritual gifts or the gifts that God gives all who have come to faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit distributes as He will these gifts that God gives for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And in between chapters 12 and 14 is this great chapter 13 that has to do with the, the God's description or the biblical description of love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you'll take your Bibles and look at that with me, we read these words. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you hear that clanging cymbal? Is there a little tanging going on here? Or is it just my pacemaker again? Oh, okay, good, all right. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. It says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love doesn't brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
And as we've been noticing in this particular section, the Bible specifically in this chapter that deals with love refers to the practical ways in which we are to treat one another. In this chapter 13, specifically in what we're looking at right now, we are instructed and encouraged how we are to treat those around us, how we are to treat others in a very practical and real way. You know, it's amazing to me that there would be people who say that the Bible is not relevant. I just kind of look at them and say, man, <laughs> the Bible that I read is very relevant. I don't know what Bible you're reading, but man, I can't think of anything more practical and more relevant than how we are to treat one another on an ongoing basis. In this particular passage, we're le we learn how love treats others in a practical, everyday world and how we interact with one another, whether it's our spouses, our children, our friends, our family, our co-workers, our teammates, our classmates, and on and on and on the list goes. The Bible is very clear of how God expects us as His representatives here on this earth to respond and to react with one another. What we're learning from this passage is that our first natural inclinations are not what God says they should be. And in fact, we've noticed that the last couple of times we've been together, we've learned that God's love is patient and God's love is kind. And it's 180 degrees different from our natural or our first inclination as to how we want to respond to those around us. God's love is patient and God's love is kind. Now what we have going on here is God identifies what love is not. And throughout the Bible, God takes that which is not or contrasts that's what is versus that which is not, or that which is versus that which should be. And as we look at this, this is exactly what we have taken place here. What God is saying is, Chuck, I want you to understand what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now I'm going to help you understand what patience and kindness is by explaining to you what love is not. And as we look at these eight, or these eight uh, descriptions of what love is not, I can't help but be impressed upon the fact that, you know what, God chooses, chooses two words, kindness uh, or, and patience or long-suffering, and now he chooses eight to help us understand what it's not. And I don't think there's any coincidence to that because unfortunately in our world today, what we find is we see more clearly the eight things that love is not supposed to be demonstrated on a regular basis versus those two things or qualities that love is. Now don't forget, if love is patient and love is kind, then it will not be, as he describes here in this list, these eight descriptions or things that God says that love is not. So as we look at how we're to relate to one another or to treat one another, what we're going to find are eight descriptions that God uses to help us understand what love is not. And I'm afraid as we look at these, and I know as I've studied and put this all together, it was very convicting to me how oftentimes in my life I'm guilty of, of uh, quote, loving people in the wrong way or not demonstrating love to them at all. Because the Bible says, first of all, that love is what? Not jealous. Notice in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, we find out that love is patient that love is kind, and now the negatives are, to begin, are, are listed. Love is not jealous. God's love is not jealous. The words that we translate jealous, or some uh, translations have envy, others have indignation. The words jealous, envy, or indignation comes from a Greek word found 34 times all throughout the New Testament in its various forms. The root word means to seethe or to boil, which if you recall in our description of patience, the opposite of patience is what? Well, impatience, but the bottom line is this, that God's love is patient, meaning it is slow to seethe or slow to boil. Now, jealousy goes the other direction. We are immediately jealous because it stirs up emotions within each of us that want us to react to people in a negative way. God's love is patient. On the other hand, or contrast to that, is that love is not jealous. Many times our response to those around us is we become jealous of what we see happening. The word refers to emotions that are easily stirred up in us. It carries with it the idea of, of bitterness and resentment, of harboring attitudes that show competition to others. We're told in no uncertain terms as we look at this passage that God's love is not under any circumstances and without exceptions, God's love is never jealous. 
In fact, there are very clear examples in Scripture of the evils and dangers of being jealous or envious of others. One of the first passages that came to mind, turn back to Genesis chapter 37, as we take a look at how, the, how dangerous the whole emotional aspect of jealousy or envy can be as we look at the lives of those around us and these, these feelings or emotions are stirred up within us of harboring bitterness or resentment or becoming competitive with those around us. In Genesis chapter 37 is, is probably a very, very clear illustration of the problems that can be generated as we, as we look at the whole problem of envy or jealousy in our life. In Genesis chapter 37, um, let's start with verse 3. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, or a multicolored dream coat. And, uh, and his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. It says, and he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to mine. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow, bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him or envious of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. The pattern of sin that's, that's uh, developed for us in this passage is, pre is very interesting as it relates to how we view one another. And notice it very carefully because it will help us to understand and to ask ourselves some tough questions. And that is, am I a jealous person? Am I an envious person? And as we look at this, first of all, you'll notice this. That when his brothers saw that he was favored by his father... It stirred up emotions within them. And the emotions that it stirred up within them were what? One of hatred and anger. They saw that his father favored him over all the rest of them. How many of us can relate to that? We see it happen regularly all around us. Maybe you grew up in an environment like that. Well, you always liked him better, or you always liked her better. Remember, I remember the Tommy, uh, the Smothers brothers used to do a thing where, you know, the one brother would have like a nice new bike, and the other one would be, you know, walking with a chicken on a leash, you know, that type of thing. It was kind of just symbolic of the fact that, you know, one was favored over the other. You always liked him better. You always liked her better. Uh, you know, maybe you're, you're on an athletic team, and, you know, the coach likes one person over the other, or you work in an environment where, you know what, there's one person in the office that they can, they they could just mess up all the time and it doesn't really matter because it doesn't make any difference because they're just that favored person. And you look at them and it stirs up these emotions within your heart. And you can, you can identify with what Joseph's brothers were going through. Because it was like, man, you know what? The, the, you know, the little baby boy, you know, dad loves him more than us. Dad takes care of him more than us. Dad made him that cool coat and he didn't make us one. I mean, and so they had these emotions stirred up within their hearts. And as they saw this and his favored status among them, it stirred up these emotions. But the emotions were those of anger and hatred. They couldn't even stand to be around them. They couldn't even stand talking to them. They couldn't even go through a superficial, hey, how's your day going? They could have cared less. They were hoping it was going bad. If you've got people in your life like, you know exactly what God is saying here. And the dangers that go along with it and are associated with it. Maybe God's bringing to mind right now a person in your life that you know exactly how you feel. And every time you see them, you can't stand to even look at them because they have gained a favored status, one that you think you should have yourself. It's interesting. It stirred up these emotions of anger and hatred. And their question was, why him and why not me? Why him and why not us? They seethed and they boiled over. They weren't loving at all. They weren't patient at all. In fact, they were so angry that they got together and they conspired and came up with a plan. And their plan was first, let's kill him. Let's kill him. We'll get him out of the way, then maybe dad will like us more. We get him out of the way, maybe we can get that cool coat. You know, whatever it is. We get him out of the way, then somehow or another, if we can get him out of the way, it will elevate us in the, in the eyes of those around us. How many of us have ever found ourselves thinking like that? 
Man, you know what? Climbing over the bodies of those who are strewn out in front of us, and if we can help stack them up, that's even better. And so they seethed, they boiled over, and they boiled over to the point where they sat down and they planned to murder their brother. But instead of murdering him, they came up with a better plan. I know what we'll do. Rather than murder him, why don't we sell him? At least we'll get something out of it. So they sold him into slavery. They conspired to sell him into slavery. And the motivation behind this, this heinous act of selling them into slavery was nothing more than envy or jealousy. In Acts chapter 7, verse 9, it, uh, we, we, it confirms what we see here. That they were, it says, the patriarchs becoming envious even sold Joseph into slavery. It's the same Greek word that's used here in uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 4, of being envious when it talks about love is not jealous. Love doesn't do what they did to their brother. Love couldn't do that. Love doesn't see though they're over and boil. Love doesn't see what another person has gotten and want what they have. It's a clear warning to all of us when we're jealous or envious over the attention or the preference that's shown to others that this can and oftentimes leads to intense hatred, hatred towards the person we compare ourselves to. I find it fascinating that they weren't angry with their dad. They were angry with him. Isn't that amazing how that works? We're not going to be angry at mom or dad. We're going to be angry at the person receiving their attention. Can't be angry at my coach, so I'm going to be angry at my teammate who receives the attention. I can't be angry at my teacher, so I'll be angry at the classmate who receives the attention. I can't be angry at my boss because that isn't politically correct and it doesn't work for you know, a long time of being here on the job. So what I'm going to do is instead of being angry at the boss, I'll be angry at the person who got promoted ahead of me. Think it's, isn't that ironic that we become angry at the person who's a recipient and we don't even go to the source of where the problem was? And we look at this and go, wow, you know, it's a very serious problem that can quickly destroy our lives, the joy in the Lord, and certainly our growth in Christ. Think about it. Jealousy leads to hatred. Hatred leads to a multitude of sins. And the question for you is this. Are you jealous of the attention or the treatment received by another? Maybe it's by a co-worker. Maybe it's by a family member. Maybe it's by a teammate. Maybe it's by a classmate. You believe you deserve the promotion. You believe you deserve the job. You believe you deserve that position. You believe you deserve more playing time. You believe this, you believe that, whatever it is, and you look at that person who has it, and you've got these feelings of anger, anger toward the ones who got it. You believe you should do this or that, and you resent the one who's in your way. Isn't it amazing to me how we look at that, and we see people in front of us, and we think, wow, you know what, what's our response? It's interesting, having been in athletics all my life, it's interesting to see how these things are, are played out in front, of, uh, in front of all of us. It's interesting to see the reaction when somebody else hits the winning basket. Your team still wins, but you're upset because they're getting all the, the glory and all the attention, and you're just you know, on the team that won. You know, they make the winning goal. They shoot the winning shot. They hit the winning home run or they get the, the game-winning hit and they get the, the applause and the, and, the, and the adoration. And rather than being joyful because your team won, you sit and you pout. And as parents, sometimes we encourage the wrong things in our children. And it's important that we recognize and understand that oftentimes the adults are, are just as much to blame as the child because we're not teaching the right principles and we're not teaching the right truth. And I look, and as I've studied this, I've been so convicted, I look back, and it's like a flashback of my life as I've dealt with coaching my own children, I've dealt with coaching other people, and I think, and, and, and it's like, you know, what were the things that I taught them? Did I teach them to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? How do you feel when somebody else gets the promotion? How do you feel when somebody else lands the big new account? How do you feel when somebody else, you know, is successful at your office, and because they're successful in your office, maybe all of you succeed together. But yet there's still that harbor, you harbor that bitterness and anger and resentment in your heart because it's not you. It's them. And it's not you. That is not love. That is not love. It's the opposite of love. It's an opposition to what God's love is. See, God's love doesn't compare one person to another. Doesn't envy nor feel jealous of the successes or the abilities, the appearance or the blessing of others. God's love doesn't feel hurt because another person is happy or blessed. It rejoices with those who rejoice, and it weeps with those who weep. 
the question that we have to all ask ourselves is this, am I a very loving person based on God's definition? Or do I harbor anger and bitterness and resentment because somebody else is getting the attention that, that I think I deserve or I should have? It's easy to see how subtle, how subtle that is and how it just creeps into our life. How we can rationalize it and justify it. Yet the Bible is so clear that that's not love at all. And if we're going to demonstrate God's love in the world around us, I'll guarantee you this. When someone else gets the winning shot and you walk over to them and you congratulate them and you are genuinely rejoicing in, in their accomplishments and their triumphs and their publicity and all the attention that they get and you can walk away and you're not bitter or angry or resentful or any of it, then you're demonstrating to the world around us what God's love is really like. When somebody else in your company is successful and you go to them and you congratulate them on their promotion and you go to them even though they know that they think you should have got it and they got it instead of you. Even though they know in your heart that you should be playing and they shouldn't be playing but somebody just chose you and not them. And when you can go to them and you can say to them, hey, you know what? I am genuinely happy for you. I rejoice in your accomplishments and I will help you become even more successful. I will guarantee you it'll be a light that shines brightly in a dark world. And that's what God's love's supposed to do. When you're a senior and maybe you think you should be playing more than a junior or a sophomore and you can go and you can help a younger person to become better at what they do. The Christ-like example that you set will be a huge statement to the people around you when they look at themselves and go, if I were you, I'd be angry. If I were you, I'd be bitter. If I were you, I'd be resentful. If I were you, you know what? Here's what I would do. I would do this. I would do that. I would do everything else. But what you're doing, I don't understand. And the reason they don't understand it is because the peace of God, as we're obedient to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. They can't understand that. It's impossible to understand that. Even as believers, and when we're obedient, we experience that kind of grace in our life, we don't understand it. But we know what the Word of God says. My grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness my power will be perfected. And we read that and we experience it and go, wow, how does that work? I don't know. It does. It just does. Are you jealous, envious of another person? Then the Word of God calls it sin. And we're to ask for forgiveness. We're to confess with God, Lord, what I feel, what I'm, what, what I'm sensing, what, what, what I, what I want to do is wrong before you. And I confess it and I agree with you what I'm doing is wrong and I ask you for forgiveness. And I ask you to fill my heart with your love so that I can love that person as you want me to love them. See, God's love is not jealous. God's love also is not boastful. The New American Standard tells us as we read this passage that God's love does not brag. God's love is not jealous. God's love, what? Does not brag. That, that kind of God's love doesn't parade itself in front of others in order to impress them or receive attention or strokes. God's love doesn't have to fish for compliments or attaboys. God's love, it does not boast. As we look at this, it's the only place in the Bible where this word is used, and the Greek word from which this verb is taken refers to a braggart. It means somebody who reads his own press clippings, basically, and makes sure that everybody else knows about them. I'm going to go into great details in a minute. Uh, child number 114. Child number 114, you're being summonsed. I would imagine that's what that is, right? There you go. So just that way we can all get that out of our way real quick. There goes the proud mother of child number 114. There is no way to get out of here without us seeing you. Hey, we'll wait for you. But I want to talk a little bit more about this boasting. But, but there's another truth here that I want you to contemplate, and it's this. There's an early church leader by the name of Clement of Alexandra. And he says that this word means, listen carefully, to ornament oneself with the emphasis on the extraneous and the useless. To ornament oneself with the emphasis on the extraneous and the useless. In other words... What the Bible is telling us is God's love does not boast about that which is unimportant and useless. Now, it's interesting as we try to define what we believe is important and useful. But God has very clear understanding of what is important and what isn't. What is useful and what is useless. And Jesus uh, demonstrates that to us. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and he clearly defines for us those things that are useful or useless. In Matthew chapter 6... 
Notice what he says. See, we often put the emphasis upon things that don't last and are not eternal. We boast about things that are temporary. We boast about stuff like our cars and our homes and our clothes and our bank accounts and our rings and our watches and our jewelry and our new dress and our new suit and this, that, and the other thing. We boast about stuff like that all the time. And what's interesting is Jesus said this about those things. Hey, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Notice what he says. Don't be boasting about stuff that isn't going to last anyway. It's not eternal. It's really not significant in God's overall scheme of things or plan of things. It really doesn't make that much difference. He says, but for you, God's people, we are to lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, for your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isn't that interesting? He gets right to the point. Why do we get so hung up on things that are temporary, that are really in the eternal scope of things useless, they're not useful, they're temporary, they're not going to make any difference at all. But you know what's really fascinating too is think about it, and how many times do we get jealous of those people around us or envy those people around us who have things that are temporary and useless as far as God is concerned, and we're angry and upset with them because they got it and we didn't get it, and it doesn't matter anyway. Think about it. Who really cares about the stupid coat? Multicolored or not, it's still faded away. It's not here anymore. It's no big deal. And the one you see at the Pantages or whatever isn't the right real one. It's not the original coat. It's gone. And we get so hung up on these things. And we envy people who have those things, and they're going to be gone one day. They're going to fall apart. They're going to fade away. And God says, man, alive. You would think that God's people would have an eternal perspective on life that the world doesn't have. And yet we oftentimes get hung up just like everybody else in the things that are temporary and superficial. And they don't matter. See, God's love is not boastful. It's not arrogant. The world's passing away. We're told not to love it. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out with us. We should be content. And godliness is a form of contentment. We should be content in our relationship with God and the things that he gives us and he chooses to bless us with. Now, it's interesting as we go through this, the sad thing about someone who brags about his achievements and accomplishments is that he has a tendency to drive others away rather than to get closer to them. No one likes to hear somebody brag about their achievements and their accomplishments. Nobody wants to be around a person like that. And if we're to demonstrate God's love in the life of another person, guess what? You have to have access to them. And if you're scaring them away because you're boastful... They don't want anything to do with you. How can you share God's love with them? It's interesting. When you love with God's love, when you love with God's love, guess what you do? You learn to boast in the Lord rather than in yourself. Psalm 34, 2 says, my, my soul shall boast or make its boasts in the Lord. Psalm 44, 8, In God we boast all day long. 1 Corinthians 1, 31, a passage that quotes Jeremiah 9, 24, we read, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Yesterday I had the opportunity to speak to a men's group at another church. And uh, basically they asked if I would come and just share my testimony of how I came to know Jesus Christ and, and what God has done in my life uh, from, from the time before, how I came to know him, and what God's been doing since then. And what's interesting is, as I have the opportunities to do that, one of the things that God has always impressed upon me is that I'm not there really to talk about me. I am there to talk about Jesus. I am there because I'm only being asked to be there because Jesus came into my life. I'm only there to share what Jesus Christ himself has done in my life as I surrendered to God and I confessed my sin and agreed what God said that I was a sinner, that there's no way in the world I'd ever get to heaven and that God sent Jesus to die for me and I believe that and because of that God says if any man's in Christ he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. As I'm sharing with them what Jesus has done in my life, I am reminded the only reason I was standing there and the only reason I stand here today is as a testimony or as a trophy, trophy display of the grace of God that we receive when we believe in Jesus Christ. See, there is nothing in any of us that's worth bragging about anyway. If we're going to boast, let's boast in the Lord. 
If we're going to brag about anyone, let's brag about Jesus. You know, I think about people that have done good things in my life for me, and I can't wait to go around and tell people about it. I remember as a little boy walking out of Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, walking down the street, and Roberto Clemente came out. And as he was walking down the sidewalk, I ran over to him, and I went, Mr. Clemente, you know, would you please give me, he probably thought there was something wrong with me, so I felt sorry for me. And, 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 he, and I got his autograph. And man, you know, for years I'd just go around telling people what a gracious man. Roberto Clemente knelt down on the street, dirty street in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and wrote and signed his name to a kid that he didn't know and he didn't have to. And he did it because he was a gracious person. And I went around telling everybody, I'm telling you now. <laughs> wow, you know, think about it. And, and we have people in our life who do nice things for us. And we go around, we go crazy telling people about, hey, do you know what so-and-so did? This is what they did for me. Or this is what they did for us. Wow, I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? And we brag and we boast about people who have done good things to us and for us. And then I was really just struck by the thought, how much more so should we be running around boasting about Jesus for what he has done for us? Roberto Clemente never died on the cross for me. The people that helped me in business never died on the cross for my sins. Roberto Clemente died. He never rose from the dead to save me from my sins. Jesus did. And yet when we go and we start bragging and boasting about Jesus, people say, ah, I don't want to hear that. We want to hear about you. We want to hear about how hard you work. We want to hear about all the tough times you had. We want to hear about how you were a stock boy at a grocery store two years ago and now how now you are the MVP of the NFL. We want to hear about how you overcame all that stuff. And praise God for men who use that platform to say it's not about me, but Jesus Christ deserves all the praise and all the glory because there's nothing good in me whatsoever. You know what? And if it wasn't for Jesus, I could still be stocking shelves. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd still be lost in my sin. And if it wasn't for Jesus, my marriage probably would have fell apart. And who knows where I'd be. And I'd probably be an alcoholic or a drug addict like family members that I know. I mean, if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't know where I would be. All I know is this. I'm glad I am where I am. And it's only because of Jesus that I stand here today. See, I, I don't know why we back down and we become so ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the apostle Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? I'm not ashamed. You can't shut me up. You can't tell me not to talk about Jesus. You can't tell me not to praise Jesus. You can't tell me to do that. I can't help myself. How about you? When was the last time you told anybody about what Jesus Christ has done in your life? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. But if you deny me, I'm going to deny you. Because there's a good chance if you're denying me, you really don't know me. Because if you know me, you can't help telling people about me. You just can't. There's no way. If you know Jesus and you know what he's done in your life, you can't help it. The apostles, the disciples, when Jesus rose from the dead and they went into the streets and they proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus and the people said, shut up, don't tell anybody. They said, I can't help it. We can't help ourselves. You can kill us, it doesn't matter, because we're going out shouting. We saw the resurrected Lord, and he's changed our life. And you can't tell me to shut up. You can't tell me to change it to, well, can you just say God? No, you can't tell me to make it generic so that people don't understand, and they can have their own understanding of what it is I'm trying to say. Because I want you to hear very clearly, I am here to boast about Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, my God. Isn't that exciting? That's good stuff. So if you're going to start to boast about anything or anybody, let's start boasting about Jesus. We are who we are because of him and him alone. Let us also realize that love is not arrogant, and they kind of tie together, don't they? The word arrogant has to do with being puffed up. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Arrogant has to do with puffed up. Eight times in the New Testament, the Greek word for arrogance is used. It has to do with being puffed up. It's interesting, arrogance refers to the inflation of one's importance, abilities, appearance, or achievements. It's closely related to what we've just talked about, about not bragging. In fact, Proverbs 27, 2 says this, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Somebody going to brag about you, let somebody else do it. You don't have to brag about yourself. What's interesting, a great example of arrogance is found in Luke chapter 18. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 18. Because we're going to kick it into turbo mode here in a second. Luke chapter 18, verse 10 through 14. Notice what he, this man says. 
Here's a great example of arrogance. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax gatherer. One a self-proclaimed righteous man, so to speak, and another who realized that he had fallen short of the standard of God. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. Bunch of swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer standing here next to me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer said, standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you this, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Can you imagine the arrogance? God, I just want to praise you that I'm not like these people. It's interesting as you look at the world around us, you know, I've thought about this because these two, these two factors are so, so uh, prevalent in our culture. They've permeated our society, being boastful and being arrogant. We often see it in at times in athletics. You know, I'm reminded of this regularly as I see such demonstrations in the sports world. You know, we see trash talking. We see uh, self-promotion. We see boasting of accomplishments. We see guys, they make a tackle. They want to take off their helmet and, sh and look toward the camera. We see people that, you know, when they make a play, they jump up and down, they strut, and they point to themselves. And we we look at all that and we kind of consider it entertainment. It's just entertainment value. But the danger with the entertainment value of that is that we see eight-year-old kids in playgrounds doing the same thing. We see people, you know, young people in high school doing the same thing. See, sports isn't about sportsmanship anymore. Sports isn't about team play anymore. Sports is about promoting yourself at the expense of those around you because who cares about everybody else but you? That's what we see, and that's the danger of all of it. And we've got to be careful as God's people not to fall trap or prey into that syndrome. We cannot be like everybody else. If we become like everybody else, our effectiveness in our culture is neutralized. If we start promoting ourselves and we start doing all those things, I just laugh and I crack up. It's like a guy makes a tackle, he jumps up, he wants everybody to know, and I'm thinking, hey, that's your job. You're supposed to make tackles. You know, you caught a pass. Wow, you caught two in a game. You know, I mean, gee whiz, think about it. You've played 60 minutes, you, you've caught two passes. And you want everybody to know your name and everybody recognize you. And you want to take off your helmet. And the NFL had to come up with a rule, you can't take off your helmet anymore because everybody was doing it. It's like, wow, we promote ourselves at, at the expense of those around us. You know, I was thinking as, as a young person growing up, I remember seeing Muhammad Ali walking around all the time going, I am the greatest, I am the greatest, I am the prettiest, I am the greatest. And we all laugh at that. We look at that. We smile at that. And we go, wow, that's so funny, you know. I am the greatest. And I'm thinking, you know what, though? It started a whole era of people who followed who now emulate him to say that they're the greatest. It's not entertainment. At least from God's perspective, it's not entertainment. It's arrogance, and it's dangerous, and it affects sound judgment. I love the story that I heard about Muhammad Ali. You probably may have heard it. He was on an airplane, sitting in first class. They were taxiing down the runway. The students came to him and said, Sir, would you put on your seatbelt? And he looked at her and said, I'm Superman! Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him for a second and smiled and said, Sir, Superman doesn't need an airplane. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> I love that. It's great. <coughs> Think about it. You ever blow up a balloon? No? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking you could blow up a blimp, okay? Come on now. I know I'm going to regret saying that. So I ask you to forgive me right now. But I don't mean it, so I'll wait till I do. <laughs> but for the, rows of the, the, for the rest of us who just blow up little balloons, if you've ever blown up a balloon, and you've ever put a lot of effort into blowing up a balloon, and you've ever kind of let it slipped out of your hand and it shot all around a room, that's exactly the same word picture that God gives us of being puffed up or arrogant. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy into puffing ourselves up. But you know what happens is that it slips out of our hand, and when it's all said and done, it just goes. <laughs> and there you are. And, and, and there it is. That's you. That's me. There, there we end up. But the slobber coming hanging out of us, and just, it's just ugly there, that thing. That's what happens when we're all puffed up. 
I can't help but think of how many times in Scripture that God warns us that pride comes before the fall. I think as we went through our study of the book of Daniel, that, that here we go, we got Nebuchadnezzar, who God warned, if you don't, you don't change your arrogant, prideful ways, man, for seven years, you're going to be out mowing the grass with your teeth. You know, you're going to be out there like a wild beast in the backyard. For seven years, he did exactly as God said, because pride came before the fall. I think of Alexander the Great, who at the age of 32, destroyed himself exactly as the word of God predicted that he would. That he would destroy himself and not be destroyed at the hands of the enemies, that God himself would take his life out. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great, I am the greatest! No, you're not. I can't help but think of Muhammad Ali as he struggles with the ravages of Parkinson's disease. And I think back of all the times that he jumped around boasting of how he was the greatest how humbling it is to realize, you know what, there's only one who's great, and he is God, and we are not. There's only one who deserves praise. There's only one who deserves that we boast and praise and, and boast of his goodness, and that's God, not us. There's nothing in any of us that would cause any of us to feel like we should be arrogant at all. Because what, what's in us at all? You know, you stop and think about that. What, what's in any of us? You know, it's interesting, and some of you know because you've been there, but you know, I've been around athletics all my life, as I said, and I've been around professional sports for 20 years, and it's been an eye-opening experience for me because here's what I found out, and here's what I want to share with you, and that's this. We don't have to promote ourselves as God's people, and I'll tell you why, because God knows where we are. In case you ever thought maybe God misplaced you, he knows where you are. See, King David, David the shepherd boy, didn't have to promote himself to take over, did he? All the others paraded in front of him, and uh, they were like, hey, man, this isn't him, this isn't him, this isn't him. Oh, here's a big, strong, handsome dude. This must be him. No, it's not him. Well, we're out of people. Oh, no, there's one more. He's out in the field. He's tending sheep. A little scrawny dude. Well, bring him in. You know what? God knew where David was. He brought him in from the field. He brought him in from the pasture. He stood him before the, the prophet, and he said, this is my man. See, because God doesn't judge the outward appearance as man does. God judges the heart. God knows where you are. God knows where I am. God knows if he wants to promote you at your company, he will promote you. He knows the desk that you sit in. He knows that the office that you occupy. If God wants you to play more on your team sport, he knows where you sit. He knows what position that you play. The, king, the, heart, of the, kings, the, the, the heart of the king is in the hands of God. He can make it go any way that he wants. He's not limited by a coach. He's not limited by a teacher. He's not limited by a boss. He's not limited by, by a parent even. He's not limited by anybody. God is not limited. And he knows where we are. And if he wants to promote us, he'll promote us. We don't have to be arrogant and sell ourselves and promote ourselves. I see parents all the time. They want to call a newspaper and tell them about their kid. They want to write articles and send it in under somebody else's name so they can't tell like it's somebody else who's bragging about their kid or boasting about their kid and all the accomplishments. Or they call and they tell somebody else, well, I don't want to call. Would you call for me? Because it kind of look bad if I'm the one calling. Well, yeah, it would. Well, it's just, it's just as stupid and it looks just as bad if you tell somebody else to do it. Listen to me. If any of you have children who are in sports, young people in sports, listen to it very carefully. If they're good and God has a plan for them that includes athletics, he knows where to find them and he knows how to get people into your life that will take them to the next level. You don't have to promote them. And you don't have to be jealous or envious or arrogant or boastful or any of that toward those who get what you think is more attention than what your kid deserves. Get over it. Get over it. I'm telling you, being around athletics, I know this. If someone's good, they'll find you. That's what they do for a living. If someone's good, guess what? There'll be a lot of people talking about you or your kid. You don't have to. You be gracious. And you praise the Lord. And you turn all the attention and the glory back to him because if it wasn't for the Lord, that person wouldn't have the talent and ability that they do. If it wasn't for the Lord, none of us have the talent or ability that we do. If it wasn't for the Lord, you wouldn't be sitting there worrying about being promoted because you got ability because you wouldn't even have the ability to even be thinking about whether you should be promoted or not. Let's channel this in the right direction and say, hey, God's love's not jealous. God's love's not boastful. God's love's not arrogant. God's love is not rude. God's love's not rude. And what rude means basically is the opposite of kindness. God's love does for others what they need at that moment in time. God's love is not rude. The word refers to outward appearance. It's important how something is said as well as what is said. It's amazing. The opposite of kindness is being rude. Interrupting people when they're talking is rude. Not looking at them or giving them eye contact when they're speaking to you is rude. 
You know, uh, well, uh, here's a good story for you. You might like this. The lady goes up to the pastor after and says, I hope you didn't take it personally, uh, Reverend, um, when my husband walked out during your servant, ser sermon. And the preacher replied, why, well, I, I did find it rather disconcerting. She said, well, don't take it as a reflection upon you. Ralph's been walking in his sleep ever since he was a child. <laughs> well, I don't know how you take that. But the point is, you know, I mean, there's just some things that are rude. God's people aren't, aren't to be rude. God's love's not rude. God's love tells the other person what they need to hear at the moment they need to hear it to build them up and encourage them. There are a lot of things in our society, in our culture, that we need to start teaching to our children again, and that is stop being rude. Be polite. And, I, and now, ladies, take this for what it's worth, but I think the feminine mo fe feminist movement has, has hurt your cause to have men be polite to you. If you think it's insulting for a guy to open the door for you, you've bought into a philosophy other than what God has to say. If you want your husband or men to treat you with dignity and honor, then you know what? If they want to open the door, you just say thank you. you don't say, hey, I can get it myself. Nothing wrong with me. Oh, yes, there is. No. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, you know, don't, don't buy into that. You know, don't, think about it. Here, here's, here's another one for you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of sharing with these guys yesterday, right? And the phone rings. The guy is sitting two tables back from where I'm standing, and his phone rings. And I just got finished, you know, you may be here, and God's trying to get a hold of your heart. So I, it worked out okay. In fact, he's calling right now. But, but he doesn't need the cell phone. But the point is this. It's like, you know what, How, where have we learned to be so rude? Got phones ringing in the middle of a service or a middle of a meeting. We got pagers going off. Get one that just buzzes, you know, and then it might wake you up, but it won't wake anybody else up. You know, there's there's things you can do that. You know, I mean, you ever been in a movie theater and you hear people their phone rings? It's like you just want to go, get out of here and share it in a loving, Christ-like manner. <laughs> How can any of us think that we're worthy of the kingdom of God? I don't know. But the point is, it's like, you know, just stupid, silly things like that. It's like, hey, if you want to talk on the phone, pull over. Pull to the side of the road. I don't want to be following you while you're looking for a notepad and paper. It's like, you know, I mean, they're just, we're just rude. We've become a rude culture. And we need to stop it. Now, I want to say this kindly. If you have to leave early, don't sit in the front row. Sit in the back. If you're late, stay in the back. You know, don't walk down front. I know you got a new suit, but we already found out that it's a temporary thing and nobody cares about it because it's fading away and, roth and, and, and rust and moth will destroy it. If you got a baby who's crying, get a clue and go in the, in the baby room. <laughs> works. That thing works, huh? Can you hear me? I can't hear you. <laughs> you know, hey, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of ways that we can learn not to be rude. God's love's not rude. You know, God's love's kind. And we need to be a lot less rude and a lot more kind. You know what I mean? And uh, however it, it, the shoe fits, hey, when somebody else is going through a tough time, you don't laugh at them. We weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn. When somebody's going through a time of blessing, we rejoice with them. We don't put a damper on God's blessings because we're envious and jealous and want to make them feel that God feel bad because God blessed them and chose not to bless us in the same way. You know, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not jealous. We're not boastful. We're not arrogant. We're not rude. And this ties right in. And we're not selfish. I mean, how many times do you have to read in the Bible that, you know, we're to have this attitude which was in Christ, who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became obedient, obedient to the point of death even on the cross. And because he did that, God gave him a name highly above every other name. He exalted him that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. He highly, he highly exalted him because Jesus humbled himself. You know, he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. Can you imagine Jesus didn't go around promoting himself? Jesus didn't go around saying, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Can you imagine? I mean, gee, I mean, Jesus came as a servant and he was humble. 
The Bible says we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and that he will exalt us at the proper time. We're to be humble servants here, serving those around us. Love doesn't keep a hidden agenda. It doesn't seek its own. It's not looking to how we can benefit from our relationship with other people. Hey, you know what? Be good to this person because I think someday they'll be able to be good to you and pay you back. It's amazing to me how manipulative we can become. Even God's people in his church. I've had to confront people who all they want to do is use groups like this and other groups like them to get a phone number and address so they can sell something. And once they've permeated and saturated that group, they move to the next group or the next church or the next this or the next that. All they're thinking about is themselves. Hey, how can you benefit me? God's love's not like that. God's love's compassionate and gracious and meets the needs of others even though that person will never be able to meet a need in your life on this side of heaven. God's love reaches out and meets the needs of others. God's love doesn't seek its own. It's not in it for itself. We're not to be selfish people. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humbleness or lowness of mind. Let each esteem each other better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of the others. God's love doesn't seek its own. It's in the present tense indicating that, you know what, it's a way of life. That we're always looking for a way that this will benefit me. All we're thinking about is me. All I'm thinking about is how, what's in it for me. We've got marriages that fall apart. Wow, because what's the source of quarrels among you? Is it not your own selfish ambition, James warned us? Isn't it because we're just selfish people? I'm not getting my way. Until I get my way, you always get your way. I should be getting my way. You got your way last time. I get my way this time. It's like, what in the world? How do you expect a relationship to grow and to prosper with that mentality? Of who won last time? Who gets their way this time? Who came first last time? Do I come first this time? It's like, give me a break. Stop it. That's not God's love. God doesn't love, doesn't seek its own. Jesus was the greatest example of that. Jesus came to what? Seeking to save the lost and also to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And if we're to be conformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, which we learned as we've gone through the book of James, then the bottom line is this. We need to be seeking what's best for others rather than ourselves. The Bible teaches deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow him. To deny yourself is sound biblical instruction. To deny those impulses of being jealous. To deny the impulses of being boastful. To deny the impulse of promoting yourself and being arrogant. To deny those impulses of being rude. To stop being selfish. God's love's not. God's love is not easily provoked. It means it doesn't allow other people to cause emotions in us that we blame them for. The word provoke means basically this. Have you ever found yourself uh, uh, thinking to yourself or taking into consideration? You go, man, you know what? He gets me so mad. He just makes me so mad. She gets me so upset. You know, on and on we go. Listen, no, that's not true. You get yourself upset. They may do something or he or she may do something that you don't like, but your response to them is under your responsibility before God. The greatest example of that was Cain saying, man, my brother gets me so upset, I'm angry. And God said, hey, you know what? Sin is crouching at your door, and you better master over it, because if you don't, there's bad news ahead for you. God holds us responsible for how we treat others and how we respond to them. We cannot allow other people to dictate our emotions, and we can't use them as our excuse. We need to take responsibility. Can other people provoke things by doing things that are wrong? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens and he was provoked at the idolatry that was taking place in the city. But he wasn't upset with the people. He was upset with what they were doing. He hated the sin, but he loved the sinner. And he used it as an opportunity to share with the city of Athens the greatest thing that they needed to hear, and that was that that God that they worshipped, the unknown God, he was here to tell them about, and he told them about Jesus. See, he didn't allow that to influence what he was there to do. And we shouldn't allow people to provoke us into anger to the point we become so angry that we don't have anything to say to them that they'll want to hear. Or to say things to them that we regret and have to ask for forgiveness. Love is not provoked. Love is also not unforgiving, which is, doesn't take into an account a wrong suffered. Love is forgiving. And we need to recognize that. We need to understand that. I don't know, maybe you've been hurt by the sins of others. Maybe in your marriage, your family, your workplace, your friends, a coach, teammates, I don't know. And you're finding it too difficult to forgive. Even calculating ways to get even. The word of God is very clear, and that is this. That you and I are to forgive. We're to be kind and tenderhearted. We're to be forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. 
That's the standard for God's people. You say, but it's so hard, man. It's so, it's, you don't understand what they did, or he did to me, or she did to me. You don't understand the hurt and, and that goes along. You know what? Maybe we don't, but I know we got a God who does. He understands. And he still commands you as, God's, as one of God's people to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You say, but it's impossible. No, it's not. It is in your own strength. It is in my own strength. It's not my natural reaction to forgive people that have hurt me. But I also understand very clearly that God says, Chuck, what you can't do, I can do for you if you just allow me. And I know that many of us have been hurt. But I'm just here to encourage you and challenge you to believe what God has to say. If you just turn to him and say, Lord, I can't forgive this person, but I know that you can. So I just want to get out of the way and step to the side. And I want you to love that person through me the way that you want to. And I will allow you to do that. And I will praise you for the ability to get it done. And the last thing is this. God's love is not joyful. And let me explain that to you because it can, it can kind of come off wrong. But it says that God's love is not joyful. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I'll never forget a few years ago when a person that, that I knew and know had uh, become guilty of sexual sin. And I recall very vividly, there was a group of people who knew that this happened, understood what had happened, and they were glad that it happened because they didn't like this person because they thought this person was arrogant. They thought this person was prideful. They thought this was, you know, hey, pride comes before the fall, and yeah, he got what he deserved. And they rejoiced in the, the failure of this human being. And I remember thinking how sad that is and how unloving it seemed without really knowing why I, I, I sensed that. And then as I was reading through this passage, I was reminded of why, why I sensed that. And it's because God says that that's wrong, that that's sin, that God's love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't find any joy in the failure of others. It doesn't mean we ignore the sin and sweep it under the rug and say, we're all sinners, so whatever, you know, there's no standard. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means this, that you know what, when another brother or sister in Christ falls into sin, you know what, it should hurt all of us. It should hurt all of us. And we should, we should weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. There should be no joy and rejoicing in the sin of God's people. No matter how much you dislike that person, no matter how much you think they deserve it, there's something wrong when we have that sense that, you know what, they got what they deserved and I'm glad. See, God's love isn't like that at all. Jesus wept as he looked over the city of Jerusalem and as he considered the sin and the rebellion of the Jewish people. Who he had come to reach, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. And he weeped as he thought about the fact that he wanted to gather them all together as a hen gathers her chicks and to, and to be able to shelter them and protect them. And they rebelled from him and they turned from him. But he wasn't glad. He wasn't rejoicing in it. He wasn't going, yeah, well, they got what they deserve. That's what they get for turning their back on me. There will be no joy at the judgment seat of Christ as he condemns those who rejected Jesus for all of eternity for what he had come to offer them and, and, and a free gift and mercy and salvation and forgiveness. There'll be no joy at the great white throne judgment as judgment is enacted. You know, I think about court scenes and I think about how oftentimes when, when, a, when a defendant is sentenced or found guilty or sentenced to life or sentenced to death, and I see society and I see people in the audience, they stand up and they applaud because, yay, justice has been done. I see people at executions who stand outside and they go, yay, and they're, they're having a party and they're selling t-shirts and they've got banners and they've got, you know, it's like they turn into a circus. And, and I think, you know, how sad that is because, yes, justice needs to be served and, yes, it must be done to preserve society. And I don't have a problem with any of that. I don't even have a problem with the death, death penalty. Regardless of your political views, I don't have a problem with that. And, and I think that as I go through Scripture, and there's a good reason for why I don't have a problem with it. But what I do have a problem with as I read through the Bible is people who rejoice in unrighteousness. I, I dare you to pick up that phone.
God's love is kind, okay? <laughs> now, now you know better. Next time. Anyway, God's love is patient. <laughs> and God's love is kind. God's love is not jealous. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant, not rude, not selfish, not provoked, uh, not unforgiving. Forgive you there, brother. And, uh, and it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. And if you're ever looking for a list of to-do things when it comes to how we should treat others around us, I would encourage you to just read 1 Corinthians 13 and just go through this list. And you know what? I think I'm going to put this list and I'm going to hang it up so that every morning when I go into my office, I see it and I put it right next to the phone. Maybe I should put it on the visor of my vehicle as I'm driving too, just to remember that, you know what? This is how God wants his people to treat others in this lifetime so that as we do, that people can be attracted by the way we treat them so that we can boast in the Lord and in him alone. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the truth, the practicality of it, the relevance of it. And we just praise you and we just pray for the strength and, and more so the obedience to yield our wills to yours so that we can love those around us and treat them as you treat us, that we can treat them as well. And we just love you. We praise you. We thank you for your long-suffering. You're slow to anger, slow to boil that you're kind, that you're patient, and that you love us even though we never loved you. Even as we ran from you, you demonstrated your great love to us that you sent Jesus to die in our place. And Lord, we're in awe of that. And we just praise you in his wonderful name. Amen. Next week we'll end this series. I uh, hope to see you here without pagers or cell phones. <laughs>